Rainbow Valley is a monthly podcast where your host Scott takes a look at key events and personalities that shaped one of the most influential, vibrant, tumultuous and swinging decades in history. Join us as we celebrate the 1960s with the stories surrounding the music and news events of the decade that shook the world. Savundra, perhaps a name not immediately recognisable today, but for a short time in 1967 he was probably the most reviled man in Britain. A businessman, originally from Sri Lanka, he conned thousands of people out of millions of pounds through his dodgy insurance company. And in one of the most remarkable television programmes ever seen at the time, David Frost presented him to the viewing public. Frost tearing Savundra apart on live TV, he presided almost judge-like with the studio audience as his jury, a lot of Savundra's victims present there that evening. Ladies and gentlemen, Rainbow Valley is proud to present the story of David Frost, Emil Savundra and the trial by television. I'm not only a fighter, I'm a poet, I'm a prophet, I'm the resurrector, I'm the savior of the boxing world. If it wasn't for me, the game would be dead. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. I think it's all over. It is now. It's good. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. In 1967, David Frost was one of the best-known faces on British TV. One of the leaders of the satire boom in the early 60s, he first came to the public's attention as the host of That Was The Week That Was, or TW3 as it was known, which ran for 18 months during 1962 and 1963. The show, devised, produced and directed by Ned Sherin, broke ground in comedy through its lampooning of the establishment and political figures. The show, first broadcast on the BBC on Saturday the 24th of November 1962, was at its height around the time of the politically charged Profumo affair, with John Profumo, the MP at the centre of the scandal, a prime target for derision. The show's cast featured Bernard Levin, Lance Percival, Kenneth Cope, Roy Kinnear and Willie Rushton. The show would open with Millicent Martin singing the theme tune with different lyrics every week reflecting the week's news. This is BBC Television. This 
muggy day in London town. Five smoggy days have got me down. The Roman church has authorized vernacular translation, for this is the age of mass communication. Jackie Kennedy's plastered on physique magazines. Shall we have Lady Dorothy in sweater and jeans? The Queen saved the guard from a terrible flight. They won't have to stand out in their bearskins all night. <laughs> As well as the opening song, Lance Percival would usually contribute a topical calypso. a young girl who suited him nice he went to his papa to ask his advice his papa said son i have to say no that girl is your sister but your mama don't know hey, oh, is me Minister Harold Macmillan and Home Secretary Henry Brooke were lampooned week after week in sketches, debates and monologues. It was groundbreaking television. Other targets would be the monarchy, Britain's declining status as a world power and racism, in particular the American South and the apartheid regime in South Africa. There were sketches and ribbing of sexual and social hypocrisy, class system and even the BBC itself. No one was safe. Perhaps the most famous edition of TW3 went out on Saturday the 23rd of November 1963, the day after the assassination of President Kennedy. As a tribute, the show was broadcast in a shorter 20-minute version, with no satire at all. The show would reflect on the loss with a contribution from Dame Sybil Thorndike and the tribute song in the summer of his years sung by Millicent Martin. It is a classic piece of British broadcasting. We've been very aware of death this year. Even here in this studio we have lost someone we still miss. But with the murder of John Kennedy, death has become immediate to people all over the world. For the first time, because of the stature of the man and the nature of a shrinking world, people everywhere feel they've lost someone they'll miss. Yesterday, one man died. Today, in America, 60 lost their lives in a fire. And yet, somehow, it is the one that matters. Even in death, it seems, we're not equal. Death is not the great leveller. Death reveals the eminent. Yes, the heart of the world waves 
After two successful series in 1962 and 1963, the programme didn't return in 1964. The reason given by the BBC was that 64 was an election year and political material would compromise the corporation's impartiality. Nevertheless, David Frost took the show to the States following its UK cancellation, where it ran on NBC from January 1964 to May 1965. Following the success of TW3, David Frost continued on UK TV, hosting Ned Sherin's successor to the show. Entitled Not So Much A Programme, More A Way Of Life, Frost co-hosted with Willie Rushton and poet PJ Kavanagh. It was screened on three evenings each week, but was dropped when one sketch was found to be offensive to Catholics and another to the British royal family. One of the biggest successes of Frost's career in the 60s was the highly successful The Frost Report, broadcast between 1966 and 1967. The show would launch the careers of John Cleese, Ronnie Barker and Ronnie Corbett. And perhaps the most famous sketch, still talked about today, addressed the issue of class. The English still enjoy the remains of their class system. There was that superb judgment that the College of Arms gave to an anxious hostess, quote, the Aga Khan is held to be a direct descendant of God, an English duke takes precedence. <laughs> Indeed, there's one rich man in Chelsea who's so snobbish he won't even travel in the same car as his chauffeur. <laughs> but how do the three classes in England see each other? I look down on him because I am upper class. I look up to him because he is upper class. But I look down on him because he is lower class. <laughs> I am middle class. <laughs> I know my place. <laughs> I look up to them both. But I don't look up to him as much as I look up to him. <laughs> Because he has got innate breeding. I have got innate breeding, but I have not got any money. <laughs> so sometimes I look up to him. I still look up to him. Because although I have money, I am vulgar. <laughs> but I'm not as vulgar as him. So I still look down on him. I know my place. <laughs> I look up to them both. But while I'm poor, I'm industrious, honest and trustworthy. Had I the inclination, I could look down on them. <laughs> but I don't. We all know our place, but what do we get out of it? I get a feeling of superiority over them. I get a feeling of inferiority from him. But a feeling of superiority over him. I get a pain in the back of my neck. <laughs> Following the success of The Frost Report, David Frost signed for Rediffusion, the ITV weekday contractor in London. The show was entitled simply The Frost Programme and was a much more serious, heavier interview-based show. It was during this period that his introduction, hello, good evening and welcome, became his catchphrase and it was often mimicked. Guests on the show included Sir Oswald Mosley and Rhodesian Prime Minister Ian Smith. Perhaps the guest that is remembered the most appeared on the show on the 3rd of February 1967. Emil Savundra, real name Michael Marion Emil Anacletus Pierre Savundra Nayagam, was a Sri Lankan businessman. More accurately, he was a Sri Lankan con man. He is best known for the collapse of his insurance company Fire Auto and Marine, which left about 400,000 motorists in the UK without coverage. As a post-war black marketeer, Savundra committed bribery and fraud on an international scale before settling in the UK to sell low-cost insurance in the fast-growing automotive market. By defaulting on mandatory securities, he funded a lavish lifestyle and travelled in fashionable circles. 
as we learnt in the episode about the Profumo scandal, Savundra knew Stephen Ward, as well as Christine Keeler and Mandy Rice-Davis, and was referred to as the Indian doctor during Ward's trial, although Savundra was neither Indian or a doctor. His extravagant way of life attracted the attention of the press, who soon uncovered evidence of major fraud. Because the Profumo scandal centred around John Profumo himself, the Minister of War, along with female escorts, the Russian defence attaché, a well-known actress, a senior member of the House of Lords and numerous figures in society, Savundra did not receive much attention. It wasn't until Christine Keeler and Mandy Rice Davis published autobiographies that mentioned him that Private Eye magazine began to notice Savundra's activities in London, triggering his downfall. Emil Savundra was one of the first controversial businessmen to use UK libel law in an attempt to prevent publications such as Private Eye from printing allegations about his life and business practices. At his 1968 trial, witnesses testified that he presented documents indicating that he underwrote Fire Auto Marine with securities worth £540,000 and £870,000 in blue chip shares. No such securities existed when the company failed. When he began to falter, Fire Auto Marine continued to issue coverage documents. Only part of the premiums were submitted by the company's brokers, some of whom were also engaged in fraud. Fire Auto Marine, the first of six insurance companies to fail during the 1960s and early 70s, was noted because of Savundra. Although Vehicle and General was the largest of these companies to fail, the belief grew that Fire Auto Marine was deliberately failing to meet its obligations to its customers. A Sunday Times team investigating Savundra's affairs reported that his reserves in stock worth nearly a million pounds were forgeries. According to his defenders, who overlooked his track record in fraudulent trading, he insured high-risk clients and didn't realise he should allocate more resources to cover claims. Although Savundra reportedly transferred Fire Auto Marine assets to a bank in Liechtenstein, no such funds were found. In May 1966, following a heart attack, the 42-year-old Savundra sold his Fire Auto Marine shares to the company directors. Led by Stuart De Quincey Walker, the company quickly collapsed and left an estimated 400,000 motorists uninsured. Savundra was pursued by the press who besieged his Hampstead mansion for days. He flew to his native Salon, where he was sheltered by relatives. The Ceylonese government refused to confirm that they would deny a British request for extradition. Eventually, Savundra returned to Europe. He was in Rome for a month, still being hounded by the British press. Finally, in January 1967, he re-entered the UK. At the age of 44, he was now dependent on pethidine injections for back pain. By now, The Frost Report was proving to be a highly popular show. It was made up of a combination of variety and silly jokes, but undoubtedly the most popular feature would be the hard-cutting interviews with popular figures. During one particular episode, David Frost made a joke about Emil Savundra. Savundra immediately telephoned the production office at Rediffusion to make a complaint. Whilst he was on the phone, David Frost told the staff member taking the call to ask Savundra to appear on the show the following week. Incredibly, Savundra agreed, believing that he would be able to exonerate himself given a suitable audience. The recording of this programme is a rare survivor from an era when television programmes, particularly live, were seldom recorded and tapes were routinely reused or wiped. I'll play the full extract of the interview in just a moment, but what has since been revealed is that just prior to the interview, Emil Savundra injected himself with a dose of pethidine. And as a result, Savundra appeared to be excessively calm and relaxed, despite the level of accusation and disdain by David Frost. The show is quite simply a classic piece of broadcasting, and has since been held up as possibly the first example of trial by television.
We join the programme after the commercial break as David Frost introduces us to part two. Welcome back. With me now, Dr. Emil Savundra. Most of you will have heard the name in connection with a great many differing incidents, whether it was 1950, the oil for China deal, Dr. Savundra Central, $1,200,000 tended to disappear. 1954, the rice for Goa deal, Dr. Savundra Central, $865,000 tended to disappear. 1958, Camp Bird scandal in Ghana, Dr. Savundra deported. 1959, the Costa Rican coffee beans, and then coming up to date, the fire auto and marine. Now, can we take a look at a diagram for a moment, just to look at fire auto and marine, uh, to see what was uh, going on at that time? Throughout all of his opening introduction, the camera cuts away to Emil Savundra who is listening to David Frost and quietly smirking to himself. Basically, this is how the situation would be described by economists, financiers, the reporters who've covered the story. That we started out with a situation where the public had a lot of money. They were attracted by Fire Auto Marine Insurance, who offered what other insurance companies said were ridiculously low premiums, what they just said were low premiums. Result, attractive to the public, money into fire auto marine insurance. Probably about five million pounds, probably at a rate of all three and a half million pounds a year by the end of the career of that company. That company controlled by Dr. Savundra with Mr. Quincy Walker, Dr. Savundra's company. The situation, however, the money was in the company, but inevitably claims started to come in. And in the last resort, the company was going to depend on its reserves, which had been invested, 900,000 pounds approximately, which they said had been invested in assorted well-known shares. But in fact, that 900,000 pounds worth of money was not in those shares at all. It had gone to Merchants Finance Trust, a bank in Liechtenstein, controlled according to the lawyer who acted for Dr. Savundra, Mr. Hagenbach, by Dr. Savundra, with Mr. Walker. The result, Fire Auto eventually went broke. Meanwhile, what had Merchants Finance Trust been doing with the money? You would have thought they would have been investing it for Fire Auto to protect the people who'd put money into Fire Auto. In fact, they hadn't. What they had done was the opposite of what happens usually to insurance companies. Normally an insurance company will have money it can call on straight away. In this case, it didn't. It had loaned about at least £600,000 worth of its money to Dr. Savundra and Mr. Walker. 380000 plus to Dr. Savundra, 200000 plus to Mr. Walker. This was on a fixed loan of 20 years. They couldn't have it back for 20 years, so Fire Auto couldn't have it back for 20 years. Again, as David Frost is describing the financial situation of Fire Auto Marine with the aid of a visual diagram, each time the camera cuts to Savundra, he's smiling, chuckling almost as if deep in the thought of some private joke. Result, and the loan, incidentally, the interest on it was very small indeed. The result, the money couldn't be got back to Fire Auto, couldn't be got back to the people who had just <coughs> claims. Fire Auto went bust. Dr. Savundra had £380,000. Mr. Walker had £200,000 plus. Merchants Finance Trust was controlled by him. Fire Auto went bust and a great many people have not had claims paid. Is that true? David Frost gives Emil Savundra his chance to reply to the accusations against him, and he's met with this response. Well, let's start at the beginning, Mr Frost. 1950, you touched on the Chinese oil deal. 1954, you touched on a mysterious deal involving Goa. Um, I'm going to... You know, the book is ready. I've got to get a commercial in for my book. Um, it's going to be published very soon, and I'm sincerely hoping that the le your 11 million readers are going to buy it. Um, I was a secret agent for certain governments. Your Penkovsky papers are going to be milk and water when it comes out. You said you were a secret agent for the Pope, I believe. It was. I've never said that. I've never said that. I've never said that. Other people no, the, have said it. The Pope told me. Yeah. Well, um, 
The last time I met His Holiness, he hadn't met you. Hmm. <laughs> if we go much further, we'll be in trouble here. I think, I think we better call but, it uh, on that one. Let us, let us in fact, let us in fact move. I mentioned those things in passing, and you mentioned the Pope in passing. Come up to this thing that we spent most of the time on explaining there. Yes. I mean, the first thing is, do you, let us get the first thing clear, you don't deny that you have received loans from MFT, Merchants Finance Trust. Let's be absolutely specific. On the date of the loans, the loan agreements, which the Sunday Times, I think, is the name of the rag, which is now changing its name to... Um, the, the Sunday Swines, that's right, um, that were uh, published. Um, You'll have to do better than that in the book. Oh, no, the book is going to be a lot better. This is one that I, I just had to think of something to, to, to um, remind me of them, but anyway. Time after time, Emil Savundra's attempts at humour fall flat, and it becomes clear that both David Frost and the audience are keen to hear Savundra's responses. Um, the, they mentioned, they, they published a photostat... They, they published a photograph of the loans on the day mentioned in those agreements most emphatically and most certainly I had borrowed the amount stated there 300 odd thousand pounds from Merchants and Finance Trust there was absolutely no doubt about that and it was on a 20-year loan and it was on a 20-year loan and you still have it Ah, that is the point. And then in one totally misjudged remark, Savundra turns the audience completely against him. No, no, that question wasn't even intelligent. I'm not going to cross swords with the peasants. I came here to cross swords with England's greatest swordsman. I'm afraid nobody is a peasant. I'm afraid they're the people who gave you your money. Ah, this is fine. This is fine, because they have given me nothing at all. You've given them nothing at all. They gave you money. No, they gave me no money. I make that absolute categorical statement, and it's a statement that they can always prove, and which no doubt is provided. You your insurance policy back, and you let me have what I gave you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, would you like your insurance policy back and you give back the money she gave you? If you have a legal the claim against court. me, madam, the High Court of England right. will enforce it. Okay, don't, just come back to the basic point. You've admitted plus £3,000 plus from MFT, which you controlled. Do you no, 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 no. That's where you put the words into my mouth. I have not admitted controlling MFT by any stretch of imagination. The man who you employed for years has said so. No, no, no. In sworn documents which are here. I'd like to see the sworn document in which he says that I controlled MFT. In all through this document, he says that as far as he was concerned, everything that happened was drafted by Savundra and Walker. Every, throughout the whole thing. As far as he was concerned, everything that was drafted was drafted by Savundra and Walker. And what, may I ask you, does the word draft mean? Does that mean control? In this case, he clearly thinks it does. I didn't, he I'm also not adds, I have now have reason to believe that the tra some of the transactions of this company have been dishonest. Now, reasons to believe are this totally man... immaterial. As David Frost's questioning becomes more intense, Savundra's responses start to make less and less sense, and the audience start to realise that his pomposity is actually masking a clown. A completely dishonest one at that, who is desperately trying to hide his dishonesty behind a smokescreen. You employed this man for years. Either he is now telling the truth and he was a shrewd person to have, or you've been stupidly fooled by this man over the years. Neither. Either dishonest or stupid. Neither. He's a Swiss lawyer. What does that mean? That means that he is playing it straight according to the Swiss lawyer's book. Not a right. Look, not a, <laughs> a wise Swiss peasant. Let's put it that way. A, a okay. wise Swiss peasant. One second. Pardon? Dr. Savundra, come back to this point. Yes. Do you still have this money that you got from MFT? No. Where is it? On a certain date for a start, I believe it was the 21st of June, this loan was taken over completely by Mr. Walker. 
He it, took over the responsibility to repay it. He Did you took give over, him the 300,000 pounds? For a start, I had not received 300,000 pounds. The loan figure was 300,000 pounds. Now, let's get this absolutely clear. I asked for a blackboard so that I could show this um, to the audience and to the 11 million odd viewers that you've got. In, and the peasants, of course. Um, but in the absence of the blackboard, it's almost impossible to show you precisely what has been shown to the government. Look up his sleeve. <laughs> what has been shown, let me... What has been shown, let me repeat, to the competent authority, the Board of Trade, um, and it's absolutely definite that this 300-odd thousand pounds, the figure, never reached me. Are Much of it did be here and now that the Board of Trade would support that statement? Oh, yes. They would. Oh, they'd have to. The facts are absolutely <laughs> stubborn. How much of it did reach you? Mr. Savannah, yes. Beg your pardon? How much Late of it did front. reach you? Under your name, you and uh, Mr. Uh, Walker, and that company lent it to you, and you say you didn't get it, then you must still have it in that company. No, no, So no. where is it? It's not let as simple as that. Let us move on to another, one more specific point. We've, we've all observed the nature and the outline of the smokescreen there. The question of the forged smoke shares... Smokescreen is the wrong word. The forged no, shares... No, no, smokescreen is the wrong what word. What would you choose the word? I would like Sunday to say... Sunday swines, I suppose. No, the Sunday swine, of course, is, uh, is a minor one. We could think of a few much better. Um, for instance, um, Shinsight theme, aiming so low, etc., so on and so forth. No, no. Um, well, that's, that's about the same standard as the one before. Now, the forged shares... Um, in April 1966... And as David Frost continues his attack with undeniable evidence, Savundra visibly starts to crack under the pressure. And I'm reading this, and this has been approved by April the Board of Trade. April 1966. Under pressure from their auditors, FAM, your company, produced for inspection the certificates of shares they said they were held as part of their assets. Right. The auditors took careful note of the dates and serial numbers of these certificates. Right. Will you uh, repeat the first sentence, which is most important? April 1966. Inaccurate. Carry on from there. April, this was, the, the auditors saw these on April 22. Uh, that is not inaccurate, that is true. Now, let's be absolutely clear about this one, and I'm prepared to challenge this anywhere. The auditors saw certain certificates before the 21st of June, um, well, we didn't get the exact dates. I've got to be exact, yes, before the 21st of June, um, the date on which I severed my connection with the company. The, the certificates that they saw then were 100% authentic? No. Yes. In April 1966, when you were in charge of this Sorry, company. Sorry, that statement is inaccurate. I'm afraid it's not. It's true. No, can't be. I'm prepared to have the auditor up here, and if he says so or no, I'm prepared to have him up for perjury. <laughs> I'm afraid you're wrong, because the fact... No, the, the fact is absolutely no. clear. The fact this has been one of the grossest misrepresentations by the Sunday newspapers that made such a hoo-ha about this. Why haven't you sued those on that specific point? I've been aware, as you know, the Ritz oh, are back already... back with the heart attack again. No, 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 back with the heart attack is not there. Is, let's, not, General. let's not bring that... I've been aware, I said. I've only just got back. The Ritz are ready. Um, we were waiting to finish your show. To serve us with one, too. Oh, well, why not? <laughs> why not? Yes, it'll all be fun. That's what worries me about you. It's all fun to you, isn't but it? But of course it's all fun. Come down here. Certainly. David Frost then leads Emil Savundra to the front of the stage area and sits him in front of the audience to face several of the people whose lives he has ruined. And as one, the audience turns against him as he tries to make light of some of the tragic stories that are being shared. Come and sit on a stool over here, will you, Dr. Savundra? Slowly, slowly. Catchy monkey. Now. Do sit down. I hope the stool's not fixed. No. Right? Un unfortunately, we forgot to think of it. Um, let, us, let us start with the lady over here who insured with you. Mm -hmm. uh, Mrs. Mills, uh, could you tell me what happened when you insured with 
Well, I didn't actually. My husband did, yeah. and uh, I lost my husband in a car crash. Sorry, did you say? In that? a car accident, you know. And um, well, we, we, my solicitor was fighting it, you know, and they um, they refused to sort of contact him and made all sorts of excuses that, um, you know, that. Uh, they found some medical evidence that, um, you know, he before he signed <coughs> the policy, he should have looked at it properly, and which was proved in court. It was all a load of trash, you know, I mean, the whole thing. And they kept going on like this, messing this about, and they offered me 500 and stuck at that. And shortly before they came, you know, became, um, you know, they went sort of uh, liquidation. Um, then we realised what had happened. They kept messing about, you know, and they wouldn't, um, they wouldn't pay out the money. They just kept sort of offering me 500 and that was it. So the situation was that you'd lost your husband? Yes, lost my husband, yes. So you were left with, with three children, with three yes. Children. And they just sort of kept messing about, you know, uh, sort of no particular purpose, you know. I mean, they Next. Just sort of Thank you very much. Well, mine seems quite trivial compared to this woman. And £240 might not seem a lot to you, Mr. Savundra, but it took me a long time to save it up. And I've got to now pay solicitor's costs, plus court fees, to fight this case to get it back. I mean, would if this like might be... Would you like me to comment on both of them? This might be fun to you, but it's certainly no fun to me. Would you like me to comment on both of them? Yes. Um, or does this mic works, does it? Oh, very well. Oh, good. Well, it's heartrending to hear the first story. And um, the only thing I can say is... I'd like to ask one question, if I may. When did the tragedy occur? Uh, about two years ago, this coming morning. In other words, for two years, in the case of a debt, the company had not paid. Yeah. I, madam, it breaks my heart to say this openly, but knowing the policy for two years, the policy, I say, it seems impossible, I'd go to the extent of saying it is completely impossible, that your solicitor would have allowed a legal case of that strength to have hung around for two years and the only possibility is that there was a material non-disclosure and that the company no, offered you 500 pounds extra He proved that. At the inquest, at the inquest it was proved. You don't know about it, do you? Um, I, thought it, the, I thought the poor gentleman was dead. Well, this is not debating points like that. You try to make things like that, in, like this, into a great laugh. I'm things not like this affect into human a beings. The, the plebs, you know. Yes. How the peasants, yes. Yes. How can you say, Dr. Savandra, on your policy, mm. benefit through care? Yes. When it appears that, in fact, you benefit, and in fact, you don't care. Well, That's what it turned a, out to be. I didn't benefit. Oh, sure. <laughs> oh not so. Well, where is all that money? Now, that is... You've been... You've evaded that, that point since I asked it before, Mr. Savundra. Where is that money? The day that you are the official inquirer, and I believe that the government has appointed an official inquirer, and I'm meeting him very soon by appointment. If you don't have a heart attack. Oh, well, that is God's will. That, that's what it always, that's what, let's, let's move on to another case, because that's what it always seems to come back to, to me. Seems to come back to the officials and the, and the top people, but that's fine. But when it's actual people involved, yes. you don't seem to be, Mrs. Chapman. But we can't deal with the people in a democracy. Just a moment. We must deal only with officials. Mrs. Chapman. We're the officials. Well, my husband was killed in if January. If you are the creditors. Just a second. My husband was killed in a car crash. He was a passenger in January, 65. And I was supposed to get £7,000. The claim was settled in April 65. And the cheque was held up for other excuses until June 65, when, of course, it bounced, which was a lot of use to me. Losing my husband, I was very badly smashed up myself. I only just lived. I'm very fortunate to be alive, yes. But what have you got to say? No compensation, nothing. The only thing I can say is this. All these... And the other heart-rending stories, which I've heard recently, have made me realize only too well that my selling out was the wisest thing I ever did. For you. For you. For me. Yes, for you. How? How do you mean that? By selling out, I have no legal responsibility 
and no moral responsibility. No moral you have, you have no total moral. moral responsibility. I beg your pardon. All these people. I beg your pardon, Mr. Frost. I have not. How can you, you say you're a Roman Catholic and it's yes. the will of God. How can you be responsible and head of a company when all these things happen and you think by some fake deal with Quincy Walker, £4,000 on June 21st. Assumed, you have already assumed How do you get rid of moral responsibility? Yeah, you can't. How, you have already assumed you, one thing, the fake deal. Well, forget the fake deal. Right. How do you sign a bit of paper yes. that gets rid of past moral responsibility? Tell me that. Because we'd all love to know. I'll tell you. You start by realizing that in your democracy, you started such things as limited liability companies, that you created such things as company law, that you created such things as company registration, that you created such things as boards of trade, that you created such things as officials, that you created such things as official receivers, that you created such things as official inspectors of the Board of Trade, and, and that's how you nail yourself to the cross. The look of sheer anger and disgust on David Frost's face at this point is pure television gold. And what did you create? I managed... Thank you. Thank you. I'm delighted you asked that question. I created the greatest thing. Money can't no. What about the 1966 I hope they do. Mm -hmm. But how can you say that absolves you of moral responsibility? By the simple, simple reason that you have forgotten that the man who took over was the managing director of the company from the day it was formed. So? And that he had run the company all the time. You haven't. Surely you know this. Why did you buy it? Why did you buy it? He'd run the company. He's therefore responsible. I can't. I can only answer to one person. He'd run the company. He's therefore responsible for this collapse. He is responsible for the management of the company. And therefore for the collapse. I am not prepared to put nail anybody else on the cross. You are now saying that you have this man who's responsible. You knew him for ten years. How on earth could you let him run this company? You have either to be stupid. Or dishonest? Neither. Which? Neither. Neither. You have surely delegated responsibility in your time. You have surely delegated authority in your time. And if you have learned the basic principles of management, Mr. Frost, you'll know that when you delegate, you delegate totally and fully. But when you delegate, when you delegate, it assumes you're in authority. And if you're in authority, you take the responsibility. No. Delegation is conveyed. When Please. a cabinet minister delegates to a civil servant, he carries the can. Please. When you delegate to somebody, Please, Praise please. Me, I will suggest that you get practice of management or, or a few elementary books on the subject and study them first. Let me just say one last question. You can look at these people yes. here, widows, widowers, whoever they are, yes. and you can feel, I have no legal responsibility, right. and I've signed a piece of paper, and I have no moral responsibility right. either. Thank you. And uh, it's not really the way to end a series, but it's the end of a series. Bye-bye. And with that, David Frost walks off set absolutely incensed, leaving Emil Savundra stranded in the background as the audience applaud their approval at the cross-examination.
That episode is currently available on YouTube and I would encourage anybody to seek it out just to see visually exactly what was going on that day. Savundra appeared secure and confident in his ability to defend his conduct as well as anticipating no problems in handling Frost questioning. Whatever the previous arrangements were with the production team, it was clear he was not ready for the hostile heckling studio audience being led by David Frost. He seemed to expect an opportunity to lecture on the finer points of law and to debate with Frost. He referred to Frost as the finest swordsman in England, but also referred to the audience, which included some of his clients and victims of the insurance company failure, as peasants, and claimed to have no moral responsibility for what had happened. Frost had obviously anticipated Savundra showing contrition and remorse before his victims and not defiance. Savundra's attitude towards these clients who were present in the audience provoked Frost into confronting Savundra over his conduct. You can just hear at the end of the programme the shout from the audience of well done Frosty. Frost finished the show without his usual sign off and he spoke to the wrong camera before walking off, the anger clearly visible. As I've mentioned earlier, the episode was quickly dubbed Trial by Television and it caused serious misgivings in the corridors of power in the television world and beyond, causing the ITV senior management to be ultra-cautious in future. It was felt that the television treatment by Frost severely compromised Savundra's right to a fair trial in a British criminal court. However, the programme created the reputation of Frost as a vigorous interviewer in the UK and may have helped develop his career in the USA, culminating in his famous interview with the post-Watergate Richard Nixon in 1977, where again he was underestimated. It also opened the door to a more aggressive style of television interview with politicians and other famous people as typified by Robin Day and continuing with Jeremy Paxman. Frost, the son of a non-conformist minister, was known for his strong sense of ethics and morality, as well as being highly intelligent and quick-witted. He sensed the anger from the audience and went on the attack. He confronted Savundra with his despicable conduct and left him in no doubt that Frost and the studio audience regarded Savundra as utterly reprehensible. Incidentally, in the audience that evening, Eric Idle later to find fame with Monty Python. Although the Directorate of Public Prosecutions had hitherto been doubtful of success in prosecuting Savundra, inaction was impossible following the broadcast of the Frost programme. On the 10th of February, Savundra was arrested. Savundra's trial lasted 42 days between January and March 1968. His conceit remained irrepressible, and he hampered his counsel by interrupting the proceedings and questioning witnesses. He was such a pompous martin that the judge King Hamilton warned him, nobody is going to say hail Caesar or stand to attention when you come into or out of the witness box. He was sentenced to eight years imprisonment and fined £50,000. Released in 1974, Savundra, who was diabetic with long-standing heart disease, as well as his dependence on his daily pethidine injections, died on the 21st of December 1976 at his home in Berkshire. His death certificate described him as retired banker. For half a century until his death in 2013, David Frost was rarely off of our TV screens. From the 1960s satirical shows to hosting quiz shows and interviewing notable celebrities and politicians, most notably perhaps his revealing interviews with former US President Richard Nixon, Frost was a force to be reckoned with. An interviewer famous the world over, his TV battle with Emil Savundra quite rightly earned him the title of England's finest swordsman. It's commonplace today to see audience-based interview shows where guests are put on trial and forced to answer for whatever crimes they may have been accused of. The David Frost's interrogation of Emil Savundra remains one of the finest and most remarkable pieces of British television broadcasting. That's it for season two of Rainbow Valley. We'll be back in the autumn with episodes featuring Joe Meek, the making of Zulu, the Zapruder film, and celebrating the anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landings. I hope you'll be able to join me as we remember the swinging decade. 
Thanks for listening. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at RV underscore podcast. Join our Facebook group at Facebook forward slash Rainbow Valley Podcast or take a look at the website rainbowvalley.libsyn.com or you can send us your thoughts and your feedback to rainbowvalleypod at gmail.com This has been a Stinking Paws production. Thank you.